So um, following on that, how does how do you strike the balance between um, you know witnessing and uh, you know saying what you mean or po pointing to what you see as as a problem or a cause of suffering, and but then pulling up short of getting entangled in disputes. This path is difficult. <laughs> this path is not easy. If this path was easy, we'd all gotten enlightened a long time ago. Yeah, this is very tricky. I mean, one of the things to do is to recognize when you're having a conversation with someone about, say, what's going on in Iraq at this point, and point out, oh, yeah, so far the U.S. military has managed to kill 100,000 civilians, most of them women and children. This is producing a great deal of dukkha. Okay. And then just step back and let them be educated if they're open to being educated. And if they say, no, it, it couldn't have. You say, oh, this is what I've read in some studies. Okay, but just present the stuff. Don't try and convince the person. Okay. Don't try and refute the other person's stuff. Simply look at yourself as trying to educate, right? Rather than trying to change somebody's mind. Look at yourself as simply, oh, this person could do with a little more information, and you're simply providing information, rather than trying to get them to come to your viewpoint. Most often, people don't change their minds. I've had this view for a long time. I'm not about to change my mind, even if it's wrong. I'll carry this pig dung on my head in a rainstorm for hours. Well, since we spent most of the morning talking about wrong views, I guess it's time to get on to right views. As I mentioned, right view is the first in the Eightfold Path. And it's interesting that not holding to fixed views is so important and yet also having right view is the first of the eight important things. This is from Majjhima Nikaya number 141, which is the exposition of the truths. And this material actually occurs in quite a number of places. Diga Nikaya 22, someplace in this, Samyutta Nikaya where the truths are given in some detail, including the Eightfold Path, which is the Fourth Noble Truth. And what, friends, is right view? Knowledge of dukkha, knowledge of the origin of dukkha, knowledge of the cessation of dukkha, and knowledge of the way of cessation of dukkha. This is called knowledge of the way leading to the cessation of dukkha. This is called right view. Now, interestingly enough here, we have a description of the Four Noble Truths. And we're on the fourth truth, the Eightfold Path, and the first bit of the Eightfold Path, where we have a description of the Four Noble Truths. The Buddha's teachings are holographic. If you attempt to understand what's going on and take only a linear viewpoint, you will miss some of the most important aspects of the teaching. You will certainly miss some of the depths. Okay, so we have this big teaching and you come down to this little part of the big teaching and there's the whole big teaching again. It's the Mandelbrot set. Okay. Um, and this is right view, the Four Noble Truths. Now, as I mentioned, this is not 
and a cosmological explanation of the world or anything like that. It's basically the viewpoint to take when examining the world. One of the ways that can be quite productive on the spiritual path is to simply go around noticing dukkha. I give this exercise to people on retreat and there is some reluctance to take it up. You know, it's like, uh, can't you find something more cheerful? But it's a very powerful practice. Just simply noticing all the unsatisfactory things that you can encounter. Just paying attention. Taking as your viewpoint, all right, how satisfactory or unsatisfactory are the things that I encounter? And then it could be very minor things. You know, oh, the answer back. Or it could be very major. Someone died. Also, when you encounter dukkha, look to see if there's any craving involved. If the origin of dukkha is craving and dukkha has arisen, if the Buddha is right, there must be some craving around. Now, the Buddha said, don't believe things just because I told you so. Investigate for yourself. So, if you're doing the practice of investigating dukkha, you also need to do the practice of investigating if, is there any craving, any wanting of things to be different from the way they are. And then if you do identify some craving, see if you can somehow manage to let go of the craving. Now, this is the tricky bit. I tell you, let go of craving. The Buddha comes sits here. He tells you, let go of craving. So it's still really, really, really hard to do. Okay, but sometimes, sometimes you can actually, you know, loosen your grip, back it off, and see what it feels like. So use this as, again, a viewpoint, a way to investigate. And then the Eightfold Path, eight things to do to learn to let go of craving. Eight practices, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. So this is uh, this view, this right view is sort of an orientation and is centered around the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. Now, one way of looking at the Four Noble Truths, or at least the first three of the Four Noble Truths, is that they are a summary of some of the most important points of dependent origination. Dependent origination is a more detailed explanation that covers the same material. Sometimes you find it given with nine steps, sometimes ten steps, sometimes a dozen steps. Sometimes you find it with just pieces of it there. I mean, it's quite obvious that it's only covering these four steps of it, things like that. So we could say that right view is a view that looks at things in terms of dependent origination. We especially could say this if we turn back to Majjhima Nikaya number nine. This particular sutta has the title Samaditi, right view. Okay, so the sutta on right view. And it starts out, uh, once the Blessed One was living at Savati in Jada's Grove on Appendicus Park. And there the venerable Sariputta addressed the monks as follows. Friends, and 
Friends, bhikkhus, friends, they reply, friend, they reply. The very, the venerable Sariputta said this. One of right view, one of right view, it is said, friends. In what way is a noble disciple one of right view? Whose view is straight, who has perfect confidence in the Dhamma, has arrived at the true Dhamma. Okay, so this tells us some ideas, some hints about what right view would be like. It's straight. And it leads to perfect confidence in the Dhamma and leads one to the true understanding of the Dhamma. And the monks reply, Indeed, friend, we would come far from far away to learn the Venerable Sariputta the meaning of this statement. It would be good if the Venerable Sariputta would explain the meaning of this statement. Having heard it from him, we will remember. Then, friends, listen and attend closely to what I say. Yes. When, friends, a noble disciple understands the wholesome and the root of the unwholesome, the wholesome and the root of, of the wholesome, in this way he is one of right view, whose view is straight, who has attained confidence in the Dhamma and arrived at the true Dhamma. Okay, so the first aspect of right view is the wholesome and the unwholesome. And what is the unwholesome? What is the root of the unwholesome? What is wholesome? What is the, un, what is the root of the wholesome? Killing living beings is unwholesome. Taking what is not given is unwholesome. Misconduct and sensual pleasures is unwholesome. False speech, malicious speech, harsh speech, gossip, idle chatter are unwholesome. Ill will is unwholesome. A wrong view is unwholesome. This is called unwholesome. And what is the wholesome? Or what, pardon me. What is the root of the unwholesome? Greed, hatred, and delusion. And what is the wholesome? The opposite, abstaining from killing, etc. And what are the roots of the wholesome? Non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, or generosity, love, wisdom. When a noble disciple has thus understood the unwholesome and the root of the unwholesome, the wholesome and the root of the wholesome, he entirely abandons the underlying tendency to lust. He abolishes the underlying tendency to aversion. He expatriates the underlying tendency to the view and conceit I am. And by abandoning ignorance and arousing true knowledge, he here and now makes an end of dukkha. In that way, too, a noble disciple is one of right view, whose view is straight, who has perfect confidence in the Dhamma, has arrived at the true Dhamma. So we have the wholesome and the unwholesome and the root of the wholesome and the unwholesome, to understand basically the precepts and to understand the causes, greed, hatred, and delusion that cause us to break these precepts and to understand their opposites. Saying, good friend, the bhikkhus delighted and rejoiced in the very venerable Sariputta's words. Then they ask him a further question. But friend, might there be another way in which a noble disciple is one of right view and has arrived at the true Dhamma? There might be, friends. When, friends, a noble disciple understands nutriment, the origin of nutriment, the cessation of nutriment, and the way leading to the cessation of nutriment, in that way he is one of right view. Now, nutriment doesn't really get talked about much in Vipassana circles, but if you read the suttas, you find nutriment showing up a lot. And what is nutriment? What is the origin of nutriment, the cessation, the way leading? 
There are four kinds of nutriment for the maintenance of beings that have already come to be for the support of those seeking a new existence. What four? They are physical food, gross or subtle, contact, mental volition, and consciousness. Okay, these are the food we feed upon, the physical food, you know, like you just did an hour ago. Contact, sense contact. We go out seeking food. We also go out seeking beautiful sights, nice music, good thoughts, etc. We want to think these. They provide sense pleasures, hopefully. That's why we go out and seek them, to get the sense pleasures. So they are our nutriment, this contact, the sense contact. Volition. Our intentional actions. We feed on our karmic resultants, right? I am born of my karma. I live supported by my karma. I will inherit my karma. Whatever I do, whether wholesome or unwholesome, that I will inherit. So our volitional actions are the basis of our karma. The Buddha said, karma, I declare, O monks, is intention. So our intentions generate who we are. And then the last one, consciousness. This is usually spoken of as the consciousness of the being about to be, a being coming into consciousness. Uh, when a child is conceived, there is a consciousness that is said to arrive in this being. Uh, there's been a lot made of it and we had a question earlier about the necessity of believing in the reincarnation and all the cosmology and so forth. Uh, I think we could also look at consciousness as nutriment in that, hey, we'd rather be conscious than unconscious. Right? So we seek to be conscious of things, to know what's going on. And uh, with the arising of craving, there's the arising of nutriment. I mean, you might have gone out to eat just because it was time to go out and eat, but you might have also gone out to eat just because you were hungry, right? You wanted food, so you went and got nutriment. With the cessation of craving, there is the cessation of nutriment. If you're not craving anything, the odds of you going out and seeking something... Why bother? Right? And the way? Well, the Eightfold Path, of course. And then we have the same repeated thing about how if you do this, then uh, you lessen the tendency to greed, hatred, and aversion and can abandon the conceit I am. So, the wholesome and the unwholesome and nutriment. Saying, good. Is there another way we could look at it? Oh, yes. When, friends, a noble disciple understands dukkha, the origin of dukkha, the cessation of dukkha, and the way leading to the cessation of dukkha, in that way, one is of right view has arrived at the true Dhamma. And now we have the standard discussion of the Four Noble Truths in brief. What is dukkha? What is the origin of dukkha? 
What is the cessation of dukkha? Birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, sickness is dukkha, death is dukkha, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are dukkha. Not to obtain what one wants is dukkha. In short, the five aggregates affected by clinging are dukkha. This is called dukkha. This is the standard definition of dukkha that's given. Birth, old age, sickness, death, pain, grief, sorrow, lamentation, despair. Others say having to associate with the unloved, not getting to associate with the loved, not getting what you want. And then it says curiously, in short, the five aggregates of clinging are dukkha. The five aggregates affected by clinging is another way I've seen it translated. Or basically the five aggregates that we have a tendency to cling to. We cling to material objects, our bodies. We cling to pleasant Vedana. We cling to the absence of unpleasant Vedana. We cling to our perceptions. We cling to our thoughts and emotions, views being some of them. We cling to consciousness. This clinging is dukkha. The origin of dukkha is craving, uh, which brings renewal of being, is accompanied by delight and lust, delights in this and that, that is the craving for sensual pleasures, the craving for being, and the craving for non-being. This is the origin of suffering. The craving which brings renewal of being. Sometimes you translate it, you see it translated as the craving to be or the craving that leads to becoming. But I think this is probably a little more accurate, the craving which brings the renewal of being. You're sitting around, you're feeling bored. It's like, let's go do something. I'm craving some sensory input to feel alive and then, then I'll really be. So this is the sort of craving that can lead to dukkha. And then the three types of craving for sense pleasures. We want to see nice sights, hear nice music, think nice thoughts, etc. And craving for bhava and vibhava. Bhava is usually translated as either being or becoming. And vibhava, not being or not becoming. Now, it's true. One of the most, one of the strongest cravings that we have is the craving to be. Right? You know, somebody cuts you off on the freeway and you're frightened because, well, they just sort of threatened your being. Well, there may be other things involved there, but, you know, if somebody does something that looks like you might die as a result of it, you crave for that not to happen. But I think the best way to translate bhava would be more in terms of being and having. I want to be healthy. I want to have a nice job. And then vibhava, craving for not being and not having. I don't want to be sick. I don't want to have that politician doing that thing. Um, these are the types of cravings that go on and lead to dukkha. What is the cessation of dukkha? It is the remainderless fading away and ceasing, the giving up, relinquishing, letting go, and rejecting of the same craving. This is the cessation of dukkha. The path, the Eightfold Path. Now, interestingly enough, the Four Noble Truths are laid out in the form of an Ayurvedic medical prescription. The disease, 
dukkha. The cause of the disease, craving. The prognosis, we get a good prognosis. It's curable. Just stop the craving bit. And then the actual prescription to take down to the drugstore and get filled out, right? The eight things to do, except you don't take them to the drugstore. You do them all the time on your own. The actual medicine. So the Eightfold Path is the medicine we take for overcoming the disease of dukkha. And of course, when a disciple does this, they overcome greed, hatred, delusion, stop the conceit, I am, become enlightened. Good. Is there some other way we could look at this? Well, yes. When, when friends, a noble disciple understands aging and death, the origin of aging and death, the cessation of aging and death, and the path leading to the cessation of aging and death. That also is right view. And then there's a discussion about what it means to grow old and die. You know, wrinkled skin, hair falling out, teeth falling out, discarding the body, etc. With the arising of birth, there is aging and death. With the cessation of birth, there's a cessation of aging and death. You know, you don't want to die. Quite simple. Don't get born. Don't get born, you don't die. Right? Get born, you die. I mean, this was what the Buddha was set out to find, right? He wanted to know why there's old age, sickness, and death and what to do about it. This is his question. You know, why do we die? Well, we die because we get born. Well, of course, that only leads to the question why we get born. Saying good, the bhikkhus delighted, and then they said, is there some other way to look at this? And Sariputta says, well, yes. A noble disciple understands birth. The origin, the cessation, the path. And what is birth? You know, entering the womb, getting the senses, etc. And what is the... And what is the arising of birth? Birth arises with becoming or being. Actually, the word is bhava again, being and having. The cessation of birth, the cessation of being and having, and the eightfold path. And this, of course, is right view, leads to enlightenment. Good. Is there another way to look at it? You get the picture. <coughs> it goes on through, this sutta goes on through the steps of dependent origination. I'll cover them fairly quickly. Being, bhava, being and having. There are three kinds of being. Sense sphere being, fine material being, and immaterial being. The cosmology at the time of the Buddha was divided into quite a number of realms. I believe around 33, something like that. They're the lower realms, the hell realm, the realm of the hungry ghosts, the asuras, the animal realm, the human realm. These are all sense sphere realms. And then the lower deva realms, which are also sense sphere. Then there's the fine material realms. These are higher up deva realms. And then the immaterial deva realms. 
That's one way of looking at this. Another way of looking at it is the realm of the senses. That is, your senses hanging out as you wander down the street, looking in the stores, drive down the freeway, etc. That's the sense sphere realm. Also, you can practice meditation. And as you get into the first four jhanas, which are known as the fine material jhanas, you enter a different realm. Okay, that's a different way of being. And then as you get even more concentrated, you enter the immaterial jhanas, the deeper levels of concentration would take you to yet a different way of being. So another way of looking at these three realms are in terms of your practice, sort of a, a gross, ordinary level, a really concentrated level, and a super concentrated level. And of course, understanding being in terms of this you know, is a way to further yourself. And the arising of being is due to clinging, which of course is the next way. The origin of clinging, there are four types of clinging. Clinging to sensual pleasures, clinging to views, clinging to rites and rituals, clinging to the doctrine of self. So sensual pleasures. The Buddha compared sensual pleasures to being in debt. If you're in debt, you don't quite get to take the day off, right? Take, a, take off a month, don't work. No, you've got to keep paying the debt. You do that, the bank comes, repossesses your car, your house, all the other stuff. And you have to keep working. Sense pleasures are the same way. There's not a sense pleasure that is ultimately satisfying. There is no sunset good enough that when it finishes, you go, wow. That was so good, I never need to see a sunset ever again. No, at the end it's like, wow, that was so good. I'm coming back here tomorrow night. right? Or you hear a piece of music. That was the best piece of music ever. I could go deaf at this point. It would be fine. No, you never think like that. It's like, what else did this composer write? Okay, so we're continually seeking this. Clinging to these things. Rites and rituals. Hey, we're cool. We're Westerners. We don't do rites and rituals, right? You know, we're intellectual. We, we let all of that go. But if you look at rites and rituals in terms of habitual habit patterns, oops, we might find ourselves a bit caught up in things that, you know, we just have to do. We figure it has to be like that, right? And if it's not like that, uh, well, we experience dukkha. Right? We're clinging to these habit patterns, and they can be everything from your cup of coffee in the morning to, I don't know, your spiritual practice or your political views. Um, Cling to, uh, whoops, I skipped one. Cling to views themselves, right? We cling to views. You know, we know how it is. I'm sure everybody here has an opinion about the election. You know, why it went like it did. You know, everything from the religious right to it was stolen. I mean, you know, we've all got our explanations. Or this is preordained by God or you know, this is the way it's supposed to be here. You know, we, we get our views of how it's going to be and we cling to these views. 
these can provide a source of suffering. And then cling to self. It feels like there's somebody home. It feels like there's me. I mean, right now, it feels like I'm doing the talking. Probably feels to you like you're doing the listening. A little while ago, it was you who was eating. Right? This is a side effect of being embodied and having the type of mind that we have. If you go looking in there, everywhere you look, that's not self. But knowing this and even having practiced it, we still cling to this conceiving of a self. All right, so understanding clinging, understanding how we get caught, is part of right view. And of course, the cessation comes about with the cessation of craving. And you do that through the Four Noble Truths. So another way of looking at right view, craving. There are six classes of craving. Craving for forms, that is, sights. Craving for sounds, odors, flavors, textures, and mind objects. So craving via the senses. Now the word craving is a translation of the Pali word tanha. And tanha means thirst. Really wanting it. Wanting it so bad that if you don't get it, you're going to be upset. Often we hear that desire is the problem. But that's not what the Buddha said. It's not desire that leads to dukkha. It's craving that leads to dukkha. If you want something and you don't get it, and you're not upset because, well, you didn't want it that bad, there's no dukkha, right? But if you want it, so strongly that if you don't get it, you're going to be upset. Well, that's craving and that's dukkha. Now, the tricky bit about desire is awful close to craving. It often sort of leaks over into craving. But if you can want something and be totally fine if you don't get it, eh, no big deal. It's not a problem. But if you want it and it doesn't happen, it doesn't turn out that way, you don't get it or you get it and you lose it, that's going to lead to dukkha. And that's because you really wanted it. That's the craving. And craving arises because of Vedana. And so understanding craving is right view. Leads to enlightenment. Vedana is another way of looking at it. And there are three types of Vedana. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And there are six types of Vedana. Vedna that arise dependent on the eye, the ear, the tongue, the nose, textures, and the mind. Right? This sutta mentions just the six types. But other suttas you find the three types mentioned in the chain of dependent origination. And where does Vedna arrive from? Contact. Contact is another way of looking at right view. The origin of contact or there are six classes of contact. Contact through the eye sense, the ear sense, etc. The arising of the six-fold sense base is the origin of contact. Basically, you got senses, you got them hanging out in the world, there's going to be contact. You might have noticed you were sitting here meditating and there was that sound, whatever it was, 
The fact that you didn't want to hear it didn't come into play at all. It just showed up. Uh, I don't know whether they were working on somebody's tooth or the street or whatever, but it came into your ears, all right? You know, you have senses. They're working. Now, you closed your eyes, okay, so you could turn that sense off, but you couldn't close your ears and turn it off. And you might have noticed it was a little bit difficult to uh, close your mind. I mean, it just kept yammering away there, right? So, we have these six senses, and just having these six senses that are functioning in the world means there's going to be contact. Right view is also view of the six senses, how they arise, cease, etc. There are these six sense bases, and again, it just lists them, and they arise because of nama rupa, mind and body, or mentality and materiality. If you have a body and it had no senses, well, it wouldn't last very long. I mean, you'd be in a coma and if they didn't force feed you, you'd be dead pretty quickly. The senses are actually a necessary survival mechanism. The senses, if you have a working body, it just sort of comes with senses. So, having a mind and body is just where the senses come from. So, understanding materiality is another way of looking at right view. What is materiality? Uh, materiality is... Uh, what is mentality, materiality? What is the origin, cessation, and the way leading to the cessation? Feeling, perception, volition, contact, and attention are called mentality. So we get the four mental aggregates. Uh, sorry, we get three of the four mental ag aggregates. Feeling, perception, volition, okay, which is a type of mental formation. Uh, contact, which actually occurred earlier right, in the, in the list, we had contact. Remember, the Buddha's teachings are holographic. Don't expect everything to show up linear. You get to one point and something you already passed reappears. And attention. Attention might be closely related to consciousness. So we could, could say that mentality is the four mental aggregates, though in particular it brings out volition, contact, and attention instead of just simply concoctions and consciousness. The four great elements and the material derived from the four great elements, this is materiality. These together are nama rupa, mind and body. And where do they come from with the arising of consciousness? Consciousness is another way of looking at right view. The origin of consciousness, cessation of consciousness. There are six classes of consciousness based on the six senses. Where does consciousness arise from? Now, in some of the recensions of dependent origination, it says that consciousness arises from mind and body. That is that Consciousness and mind and body are interdependent. Uh, a simile that's given is two sheaves leaning up against each other. 
pull away one, the other falls over as well. That they are interdependent. That consciousness depends on mind and body, and mind and body depends on consciousness. This makes sense. You have a mind and body, but no consciousness? Not going to function very well, right? The mind and body fairly quickly ceases, unless, of course, you force feed it. You have consciousness without mind and body. Now, wait a second. How do you do that? Right? It's sort of like you've got to have a mind and body around for consciousness to be there. I tend to look at it as like the hardware and the software. Right? The hardware, that's the body. The operating system, that's the mind. And consciousness, that's the programs you're running. Okay? You've got to have all of this. They're interdependent. You know, you take away the computer, programs don't run. Operating system is useless. Right? You got a computer, you got no operating system, you got nice software, doesn't work. Right? You, you gotta have the whole package. So, the teachings of the interdependence of mind and body and consciousness make sense. But in this particular sutta, it says that consciousness depends on sankharas, the word I'm translating as concoctions. Here it's translated as formations, fabrications is good. Uh, I like concoctions. And of course, concoctions are uh, a way of looking at right view. There are three kinds of concoctions. Bodily, verbal, and mental concoctions. So the things that you do with your body, the things that you say, the words, the sentences, the paragraphs, and then the thoughts you think. These are also concoctions. Where do concoctions arrive from? Arise from? They arise from ignorance. And looking at ignorance is another way of looking at right view. Now, what is ignorance? Not knowing about dukkha, not knowing about the origin of dukkha, not knowing about the cessation of dukkha, not knowing about the path leading to the cessation of dukkha. So we're back holographic again, running into something we found earlier. This is called ignorance with the arising of the taints. There's the arising of ignorance with the cessation of the taints. There's the cessation of ignorance. Now the taints, the Pali word is asava. It's usually translated more literally as outflows or sometimes you see cankers. Um, anyhow, the taints are another basis for right view. They're arising and ceasing, etc. And what are the taints? What are the origin of the taints, the cessation of the taints, the way of leading to the cessation of the taints? There are these three taints. The taint of sensual desire, the taint of bhava, being and having, and the taint of ignorance. With the arising of ignorance, there's the arising of the taints. With the ceasing of ignorance, there's the ceasing of the taints. Okay, so we had the taints were dependent on ignorance, and ignorance is dependent upon the taints. Once again, we wind up with the two things supporting each other. The two not-so-pleasant things supporting each other. 
When a noble disciple has understood the taints, the origin of the taints, the cessation of the taints, and the way leading to the cessation of the taints, he entirely abandons the underlying tendency to lust. He abolishes the underlying tendency to aversion. He extirpates the underlying tendency to the view and conceit I am. And by abandoning ignorance and arousing true knowledge, he here and now makes an end of suffering. In that way, too, a noble disciple is one of right view, whose view is straight, who has, perfected, who has perfect confidence in the Dhamma and has arrived at the true Dhamma. This is what the Venerable Sariputta said. The bhikkhus were satisfied and delighted in the Venerable Sariputta's words. Okay, so the short explanation of right view is that it's the Four Noble Truths. The long explanation of right view is the wholesome and the unwholesome. The, 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 the nutriment, the Four Noble Truths, the Twelve Links of Dependent Origination in so-called reverse order, death, birth, becoming, clinging, craving, Vedna, contact, six senses, mind and body, consciousness, uh, concoctions, ignorance, and then the taints. So right view would be basically understanding these and understanding how they come into play, understanding what's going on, seeing their arising, seeing the causes behind their arising, seeing their cessation. We could, in a sense, say that dependent origination is right view. We could say that understanding the wholesome and the unwholesome, nutriment and the taints is right view, if we want to look at it in detail. So I'm going to stop at this point and see if there are any questions or comments on these two suttas and their descriptions of right view. <laughs>